are all miracles and must make the most of our limited time here. Each of us have these unique gifts to contribute and it's our job to develop these gifts and give them away. The Preschool SLP is about working smarter to create real change in ourselves and in others. Being an SLP is a mission. Let's discuss topics that matter. What are the game-changing strategies? How can we treat the whole child? How can we create the shiniest versions of ourselves and of our clients? We're here at the drawing board for a reason. Together, let's create better. Today's episode is a can't-miss episode if you work with elementary-age students. I'm going to give you six amazing strategies to put in place today to take task-oriented movement therapy activities and move them into upper elementary grades. So this episode is a can't-miss. I would say open a Google Doc and take notes on this one. It's that good. Before I dive in, I must apologize for my voice. You may notice it is raspy, and that's because even though I'm over the flu, that was last week, now I have a respiratory infection in its place. So my voice continues to be raspy, and if you see me on YouTube, I apologize because I'm wearing glasses, and that's because my eyes are watering like crazy because of allergies, so I can't wear my contact lenses. So looks and the voice, that's not really going for me this week. I apologize for that. But my content is, I am giving you top shelf stuff today. So I wanted to tell you about this content, my inspiration for this content. This actually came from my CIS members. On the same day this week, I received two emails, and they were the exact same emails, basically, from two of my CIS members. And they were both saying, I need to know how to use these materials for grades three to five. So I love my CIS members because my love language is growing. And before the CIS membership, I was kind of growing on my own, and it's a lonely place. However, with the CIS membership, I always am receiving emails in which the members are challenging me with with difficult situations or rare disorders or situations where they're not moving the needle. And it's in this challenge that change really occurs. And that's what drives me to the drawing board. And, And I look at the research and I look at all of the clinical practice we have currently available that works. And I say, how can we take these active ingredients put them together and create massive change. Because if you're with me, you are not doing status quo. If you're with me, we are agents of change. We actually practice over our license. I don't think I'm for everyone. If you're someone who just wants to know the basics, I'm not for you. If you're someone who likes to work at a mastery level and be masterful at what you do, I am for you. So I love the CIS membership because I have other master therapists and together we are tweaking the most difficult situations and we're saying, what can we do when nothing's working? We're going to find a way. We're going to go through the back door. We're going to go through the side door. We're going to go climb down a tunnel, but we're going to get there because just like the students we work with who are neurodivergent, they're going to get to the Z, but they're going to take the curvy route. 
end as a speech pathologist, if you're masterful at what you do, you're going to get to Z, but you're going to take a curvy route. And having other minds with you, you're going to be a lot stronger in taking that curvy route instead of figuring it out on your own. So I can't wait to dive into today's episode. I feel like a garbage pail kid. I am falling apart. I also have frozen shoulder. If any of you have frozen shoulder, oh, I feel so much empathy for you. It's incredibly painful, but that's not going to affect today's performance. <laughs> Lucky for you, you're going to love this stuff. Before I dive into the six strategies, let me share this short snippet from one of the emails from the CIS membership. She wrote, I just wanted to let you know how much the CIS materials have been a godsend for me. It has helped me so much to organize and plan therapy. I am rehired for consult work after I retired in 2020. I was struggling a lot with all the time it was taking me to plan and prep therapy, and there are a lot of other things I would like to spend my time on, especially grandchildren. I want to ask you if you could recommend evidence-based materials and planning for grades three to five. So we're doing upper elementary today. That would be so helpful for the rest of my workload. Thank you for making another year possible for this SLP. Your work materials, videos, and correspondence has kept me going. But let's get into six strategies that I want you to try and put into practice today. Open that Google Doc. Let's knock this out. Now, before we begin, I want you to have that mindset of what is the ultimate goal? And the ultimate goal is self-efficacy. You want the child to take the lead in the learning experience. You want that baton to go in that child's hand and to leave your hand, in which the child is ultimately saying, I am in control of how successful I am. My efforts matter. So at the end of the day, that means you are going to stop talking as much as possible. And the child is going to do the talking. The child is going to be the teacher and you're gonna take the role as the listener as and as the student. And that's because you can't do the child's push-ups for them. As long as you are talking in therapy, be it for articulation or be it for language intervention, what you're doing is you are doing the concept formulation, word retrieval, the motor planning, the motor programming, and the execution for the child. The child's in the passenger seat. The child's just along for the ride. We don't want that. We want the child in the driver's seat. So that means we need to stop talking. So you're going to see that theme coming in these six strategies I'm going to share with you is stop talking and let the child take the lead. The first strategy I'm going to share with you is the idea to move from what's visual to non-visual, okay? So let me give you an example. Here I have a movement activity in which the children are separating because we're throwing a party, the vegetarian dishes, which are made with vegetables, from the carnivore dishes, which are made with meats. So we're having a party and some of the guests are carnivores that eat meats and some of the guests are vegetarians who only eat vegetables. Or you can use the word herbivores. So what we're going to do, for instance, is with a younger child, so the two-year-olds with autism I work with, they might just see that this is a carrot, right? And they might just go and cross and they might put it in the vegetable pan and stick it on. 
Okay, that's where they are. It's very visual. It's very concrete. Now, if I'm doing the same activity with a child that's grade three to five, higher level child, I have this carrot. And what I'm going to want the child to do is only the child sees the carrot and the child's going to give the clues of what they have. So they have it in their hands. Their peers can't see it and they're going to be the teacher. And what they're going to say, so now we're moving away from visual. No one can see what it is. They're going to give a function, a feature, and a class or category. So they're going to say, this is something that you eat. It's orange and it has a green stem and it's a vegetable. So maybe someone would say, okay, is it a sweet potato? And they can give more cues. No, it's a long stick more feature cues. It's something that rabbits eat, more function cues. So they are not telling them what it is. The visual is gone. And what they're doing instead is they are using their verbal working memory. So I'm going to talk about verbal working memory a lot because when you're working with children with language delays, at all ages through the school age, this is a hallmark problem. And when I mean verbal working memory, it's being able to take verbal information, work it. And what I mean by working it is maybe you're sequencing it. Maybe you're formulating ideas, you're changing it, and then expressing it. You're working it. So with a verbal working memory, they're looking at a carrot visually. Then they're retrieving the word. It's a carrot. And then after that, they're formulating ideas about its function, about features of it, and about its class or category. Then they're sequencing these ideas and expressing them. This is verbal working memory. And what we're doing is we're improving the child's verbal working memory, which is a foundational skill in which all learning is kind of based upon. We get information, we take that information in, we change it and transform it, we work it, and then we express it. So we're building a very pivotal skill in all of the strategies I'm going to share with you today. The first strategy is we're going to move away from the visual and we're going to move it in to verbal. So the child is now using language to describe objects that others cannot see and their peers are using their ears and auditory processing instead of their eyes to process the language. We're moving away from the visual. So this is the same activity that I'm using with a child that's two-year-old in autism on my, on my caseload that I can use with a fifth grader that has a language impairment, either auditory processing or an expressive language impairment or both. So moving from visual to non-visual. And an easy way to do that is function, feature, and class. Number two strategy is we're going to move from oral to written. A good way to do that is just take post-its, okay? So here we have the carrot. I'm going to use that in my task-oriented movement therapy activity again. And I have three post-its. And on that post-it, one of them, if you can see in the YouTube, I wrote when. The other one, I wrote why. And the other post-it, I wrote how. 
So what I do is I focus on the big questions that produce complex sentences because challenge creates change. And what I find is when I focus on these more complex questions, I get who, what, what doing, yes and no, where for free. So once again, just like speech, you have a cascading impact in which you work on higher level skills and target those you're going to spontaneously develop the easier ones. So here I have my how, when, why post-its. Now what I can do is I can put how, when, why post-it next to the carrot. Here I have this where they're going across their movement activity. You're gonna go stick the carrot in the vegetarian meal pan. And they pick a post-it off the wall. Oh, this post-it says when. Now I don't have a picture or anything. They read the word when. Okay, your job is to be the teacher to come up with a question that involves when. So you can ask, when do we eat carrots? And then the first thing is say, we eat carrots when we make salads. And then, so that's, it's that easy. They might pick the how question. How do we grow carrots? It's a little bit more difficult. The listener has to process multiple pieces of information. Now, the reason I focus on how questions the most. These are my golden apple. This is my equivalent to the SKR blends. This is the hardest one is how is because it lights the brain up like a light bulb. And how is that? Many people say the CEO of the brain is in the prefrontal cortex. I would disagree with that. I would say this is a manager in the brain. It's really in the cerebellum that connects to all areas of the brain. When you ask, how do we grow carrots? That means the child has to visualize a multiple step process of how to grow carrots in that area of the brain. Then the child has to go and put that in order, these ideas, first, then, lastly, next. Then after that, the child has to verbally express that, which is a lot of motor planning, a lot of motor programming. It's complex, it's hard, a lot of verbal working memory. So once again, Work on the hard stuff and get the easy stuff for free. So how would be the million dollar question, but we'll take when and why. Why do we eat carrots? We eat carrots so we can have strong muscles. So I'm just taking post-its and writing words down and we're moving away from oral and we're moving to the written word. Now this next strategy I'm gonna share with you is from the brilliant researchers, Trina Spencer and Douglas Peterson. Now, their work on literacy intervention is what I would recommend for improving language. And that's because what they're doing at the literacy intervention level is they're working at a higher, more complex level. So having the children tell and write a story is the golden apple of how. This is something that requires a high level of verbal working memory. So when we're working at this very complex level, we get the easier stuff for free. The easier stuff spontaneously develops. So when I talk about language intervention, I'm going right into literacy intervention because it is so complex and it requires such a high level of verbal working memory that is going to result in greater gains than if I worked on lower level skills such as answering WH questions. So here we're going to use another example, and I have to give credit where credit's due. I recommend you check out this article on LSHSS. 
That's language, speech, and hearing services in the schools. And this is October 2020. Sharina Spencer and Douglas Peterson, Narrative Intervention, Principles to Practice. And even though it's it's a research article, it really is more of a tutorial. This is an article you're going to want to print out and you're going to want to reference and you get to scribble all over it and have a fun time with that. Good article. Now, let's get back to how we're going to use writing. This is a Trina Spencer idea that I'm going to share with you. You have a piece of paper, and on the side, I'm going to write the icons in the margin. So here you see an icon of a stick person, a world. So that's the character. The world is the setting. The X is the problem. The smiley face is the feelings. The check is taking action. And the sun is the consequence. So you can make it a sad sun or a happy sun. It could be a bad consequence. But what that gives the child is that structure in which the child can put in the information. And once again, you're taking the visual pictures and you're making a written. So they're going to write a setting. Once upon a time, there was a child named John. John lived in Michigan. The problem was, you know, and then we can talk about the allergies. (laughs) It's like 50 degrees in Michigan and my allergies are going crazy. So we're going through this story and we have these little visual icons and the child is actually writing the story. So we're moving into, instead of not just telling a story, we're writing the story. So this is a great little strategy to write those little icons that give them that scaffold of how do you tell a story? First, you have the character, then you're going to have the setting, then you're going to have the problem, then you're going to have the emotion they feel, then you're going to have the action they take, and then the consequence for that. That is a way to move to written from visual. Let's look at the third strategy. So I told you I'm bringing good stuff for you today. I don't do fluff. It's all good. The third strategy we can do is retelling the story. So the first thing is the child's retelling the story, but then we want the child to generate a story on their own which is harder. So when you look at my SIS membership, for instance, every week we have a Google Slides deck and it's about 10 different activities in that Google Slides deck. One of them every week is an element of the story. So the child retells the story at the end. Well, let's have the child generate their own story now. So this week, the girl is crying at the Valentine's party because she has allergies and she doesn't get to eat any of the candy. So we can make another story and we can say, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been to a party and you didn't get any presents? Oh, let's make a story about that. So we're talking about their personal experience in which they went to a party and they didn't get any presents and other people got presents. So we can talk about first, once upon a time, there was a child named, child's name, and they lived in, they went to this birthday party and The problem is they didn't get any presents. And then how did that make them feel? And what action did they take? And what was the consequence of that? So that is taking that story and applying it to their personal life. So what we're doing is not retelling the story about the girl that didn't get candy because she had allergies. We're telling a different story about them not getting a gift because it wasn't their birthday. Now let's take it up a level. We're going to go into strategy number four. And that's where we're moving from a personal story, which is they didn't get a birthday party. They didn't get a birthday gift when they went to someone's party, right? Because it wasn't their birthday. 
to a fictional story. Can we think about if someone didn't get to eat something because they had allergies? And they might tell you, yeah, my friend can't eat cheese, so they can't have pizza. Oh, okay, let's write a story about that. So we're moving to fictional where we're like, let's make a story up about a child who can't have any cheese so they can't have any pizza. That's a great idea. So this story is all made up. So we're moving from their personal experience to a fictional story. That's more difficult. You can see how that would be challenging for a fifth grader. So once again, we can use our notebook paper and we have those icons on the side of the paper. We can write in chart paper if we're in a group or in a white erase board and tell the story together and create a story together as a group. Now we're moving from your personal experiences to a fictional story in which you're making something up using the structure. All right, let's get into number five. I told you, this is good stuff. I hope you have a Google Doc because all of these strategies are really great. I've used these strategies myself. Now, even though my kiddos are six years of age, these strategies have worked with six years old. Here we're looking at focusing on executive function. So when we talk about that story in which we have a party and half of the people are herbivores, so they only eat vegetables, and half of the people are carnivores and they only eat meats, then we can talk about what are we going to do about it? Executive function. These four steps are so important to help these children through life, teach them at the preschool level, and they're going to use these through adulthood. The first strategy is this, what is the problem? So the problem is, is that some people do not eat meat. So we can't have any meat in the pan. So what's going to be our plan? And I like to make, if you can see this on YouTube, a goalpost with my fingers. The, the plan is we're going to separate the meat from the vegetables and put them in separate pans so they don't get mixed up. So what is the action we're going to take? The action is we're going to pick up all of the vegetables and put them in the vegetable pan. And we're going to take all of the meats and we're going to put them in the meat pan and cook them separately. How are we going to check it? We're going to check our checklist to make sure that we get all the ingredients for the party. Okay. So what these students are learning from a preschool level to a fifth grade level is they're learning this process of identifying a problem, creating a plan, taking action, and checking it to completion. When we're working with children with communication disorders, if you're working with a child with speech distortion issues, R, S distortions, they are statistically more likely to have executive function difficulties. If you're working with a child with phonological processes, more so. If you're working with a child with motor speech disorders, more so. If you're working with children with language impairments, they are more likely to have executive function difficulties. If you're working with children with motor impairments, you're more likely to have executive function difficulties. So essentially, every single child on your caseload, you are more likely to have executive function difficulties. Working on this process of identifying the problem, making a plan, taking action, and checking it to completion, I work with it on the preschool level. This is a game changer. And you probably all know a child that one step in that four-step process is where they get stuck. Maybe they can't even identify a problem. Maybe they don't know how to make a plan. Maybe they 
don't know how to take action or they don't take it to completion. So this is a process worth spending a lot of time on and front-loading our kiddos with this invaluable process to get them through life vocationally in the future as they function through adulthood. All right, last one, number six. Number six is we're going to have the children do the reading by themselves. So this is very important. If you want to improve reading, what the research shows is that children actually need to read. Write this down. To improve reading, the early literacy task should be both visual and verbal processing. So when you read, you look at print, right? Then you comprehend the print and then you formulate words. So there's a comprehension of the visual and there's an expression of the verbal. So what they found is not all phonological awareness tasks are created equally. Tasks that involve both print and verbal processing of the print, so it's very visual and verbal, are much more effective than either or. So just hearing rhyming words and saying whether they rhyme or not, that's not as effective as reading the rhyming words. And then after reading the rhyming words, saying if they rhyme or not. Hearing a sound and say, do they both start with that mm sound? That's not as effective as having the letter M there and saying, do they both start with that sound in which the child has to visually process it and auditorily process it as well? Because that's what reading is. It's visual and auditory. So that said, what we want to do is stop reading whenever we can. So if you look at my Google Slides decks, for instance, I'm going to give you an example. We had crack open the Valentine box and we had cues given for each of the box. The child would read the cues. So the child would read, there's a gift box and the child's going to read. It's a great pet. It likes to chew bones. It loves to go for walks and it says woof, woof. And then they guess it. So they are the teacher. They're going to read all the clues. They're going to make the guess. They're doing the visual processing. They're doing the verbal expression. That's what reading is. So the sixth strategy is to stop reading the clues, stop reading the directions, stop reading the questions, and have the children read them. Once again, we're moving to the less you talk, better. We're passing that baton to the child. The child is the teacher. You take on the role of the student. Self-efficacy is the most important thing we can teach any and every child on your caseload is that they are in charge of whether or not they're successful and that they're learning, leaning the learning experiences. The children that have self-efficacy are the ones that are going to be the most successful throughout life. So every single child on your caseload I can tell you self-efficacy is the number one goal. Every single child in my caseload, self-efficacy is the number one goal. And that's because our children, many of them are neurodivergent. They do have to work exponentially harder than their neurotypical peers. However, if they believe they can, they can. Self-efficacy really matters that much. And the research is a 
abundant when they look across intervention fields, who's going to be successful in this weight loss program? The person that believes they will be. Who's going to be successful in this college course? The person that believes they will be. If these children believe they can be successful and they're in charge of whether or not they're successful, they will be successful. That's why that baton has got to leave your hand and it's got to go with the child and the child's got to run with it. You're done. You got to pass it off. And that's how you're going to improve their verbal working memory. It's by stop talking. You can't do their push-ups for them. You go in the passenger seat, they're taking the driver's seat. So that today was the six strategies. I hope you love this episode as much as I did. I apologize for my looks. I apologize for my voice. But one thing I did have control over is the content. This is top shelf, my friends. You are welcome. And I want you to take all of this information, roll up your sleeves, and make the world a better place. One child at a time, you are always going to be first.